Come in, let us go before the Lord in prayer. Lord, first we come to you this morning. Thank you for the empty tomb. We thank you, Lord, that we serve a Savior who is alive. And not only is he alive, but he is seated right now at your right hand, making intercession for us, serving us as our high priest, as our advocate, as the propitiation for our sins, as the one who died in our place for our sins, and yet he conquered death and rose victoriously from the dead, giving us as believers hope that we don't have to fear death, that we don't have to fear the end of life, that we don't have to fear life at all because we have been granted eternal life through this great Savior as we believe in him. We thank you, Lord, that this day is not just a time, as I said earlier, uh, to get new suits and new dresses and get Easter baskets and go on Easter egg hunts. But Lord, the true story of the resurrection has massive implications for all of creation, for all of human history, for all those who are witnesses to it through the preaching of the gospel. And so, Lord, my prayer this morning, as Christians from around the world gather on this Lord's Day, which is why we worship on Sunday anyway, because of the fact that Christ was raised from the dead on the first day of the week, on the Lord's Day. My prayer, Father, is for Christians all around the world, all true believers, that you be with all of us, be with all of your gathered church today in different time zones, in different countries, on different continents, those who are free to worship openly and those who have to worship in secret, or those who can't gather at all but in spirit are still part of the church. We pray, Lord, that all believers everywhere know and believe and apply the principles, the implications of the resurrection to our lives that because of the risen Christ we have hope not only in this life but in the life to come but Lord specifically we have hope in this life that we don't live a hopeless existence that we're not just a bunch of cosmic dust or clumps of cells but Lord we have hope knowing that you created us. You created us for a purpose. You created us to worship you and to enjoy you forever. That our, our life has meaning only through you and only through what you have shown us, what you have revealed to us in your word. Lord, it is you who gives our life meaning, not our, quote, lived experience. It is you, Father, who gave our life purpose. And Lord, because of the resurrection, we have hope and we thank you for this reality this morning again father as I think about the church in the world the persecuted church believers across the globe who are suffering right now under uh, evil regimes who wish to stamp out the gospel witness the witness of the church we pray father that you be at the persecuted church this morning around the world as they know that you strengthen them, Lord, that they know that their hope is not 
in this world, but their hope is in Christ. All the church asks for, Lord, is prayers, prayers of the saints. Because, Lord, prayer is no small thing. It is no small matter because we're praying to a mighty God. We're praying to a mighty Savior who is mighty to save, who is mighty to deliver, who is seated right now reigning and ruling with the scepter of righteousness in his right hand. We're not praying to an impotent God. We're not praying to a powerless God. We are praying to the all-powerful, almighty, sovereign God of the universe. The God who made the heavens and the earth and everything in it. We ask you this morning, Lord, to remember the persecuted church. We ask you to remember the church here in our nation. That has in most, in a lot of ways, uh, given in to our secularized culture. Lord, continue to raise up churches. Continue to raise up godly men. Continue to strengthen godly men to be faithful to proclaim the gospel truth, to be faithful to shepherd the flock of God, to be faithful to love and, and serve the flock. And Lord, we're praying for a boldness out of our members, our congregants, to take the truths that we hear in our pulpits and go out and live those truths and proclaim those truths unashamedly, to be salt and light in this wicked world. And Father, I pray continually for our sister churches, Grace Fellowship, Anderson Bible, Mountain View Church, Redeemer, Christian Fellowship, and other brethren, Lord, other like-minded men in this area, as we all worship this morning, the risen Savior, that you be with us in all of our churches all of our elders, all of our deacons, all of our uh, church leadership team, all of our members, that you be with us all this morning, Lord, as we worship our risen Savior. Lord, strengthen the brethren this morning as we proclaim the great gospel of Jesus Christ, as we proclaim that Christ is risen from the dead, that Christ has risen. Lord, strengthen us this morning. And Father, lastly, I pray for the gospel message as we look at Christ, our hope, the risen Christ, our hope, that you fill me with your spirit to preach this text well, preach it to your glory, and that you send your spirit, Lord, to illuminate the text to us. Show us your truth. May we only hear from you this morning and not from man. I am just an instrument, Lord. Use me to your glory. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen. Let us turn to 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. And we're going to look at the middle part of that chapter. I think it's verses uh, 12 through 19. We want to consider the whole chapter and what Paul is, is saying in here, but our focus would be uh, verses 12 through uh, 19. And our message this morning, our topic, of course, is the risen Christ 
our hope. So I'm just going to start just for uh, context, beginning at the first part of this chapter to see the context of this passage. And if you had a chance to read it, then you'll know that this passage is primarily about the resurrection and its implications. So these are the words of Paul to the church at Corinth. It reads as follows. He says, moreover, brethren, moreover is basically saying he's continuing to address the church about different issues. So moreover is basically in addition to what he just talked about. He says, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. And that he was seen by Cephas, Peter, then by the twelve, and after that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep or died. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of all the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, which is the essence of the gospel that he talked about in the first few verses of this chapter, how do some of you, or some among you, say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. Okay? And if Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile, meaning it is empty, meaningless. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable or the most to be pitied. May the Lord bless his holy word. One of the purposes of Paul's letters, uh, all of his letters that he wrote, especially to the churches, one of the purposes of Paul's letters was to uh, answer questions and to address controversies uh, within those churches, within those congregations uh, which he was addressing. And most of his letters have themes. Now, 
he wrote to the Corinthians three times, but we only have two of those letters in, in Holy uh, Scripture. But in 1 Corinthians, Paul dealt with a plethora of issues with the Corinthian church. Uh, he started off talking about uh, God's wisdom versus the wisdom of this world. He talked about marriage and divorce. Uh, he talked about uh, allowing um, sin to uh, remain in uh, the church with the man who was uh, having an inappropriate relationship uh, with uh, a, a family member. And then now we, he talked about spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians uh, 12 and about uh, the gift of the Spirit, uh, speaking in tongues in chapter uh, 13 and 14. So he, and, and in chapter 15, he addresses questions about the resurrection. So Paul uh, had gotten a question about the resurrection and whether the resurrection of Jesus Christ was true or not. Okay? So some of the Corinthians, uh, perhaps without denying that Jesus had been raised, they were questioning the doctrine of the re resurrection because of the unbiblical understanding of the human body that uh, we're going to talk about here in a second. There was unbiblical understanding of uh, the human body uh, that the Corinthians had because of what the surrounding culture believed about uh, our state as human beings or a human anthropology, the study of man. So Paul needed to show them that the resurrection of Jesus cannot be separated from the resurrection of those who are in Christ. You can separate those two things. <clears throat> because if the resurrection of the believers was not true, then neither is Christ's resurrection. But to deny even by implication that Jesus' body uh, was raised from the tomb destroys the whole message of the gospel. If there's no resurrection of Christ, it undermines the gospel message. Totally. There is no gospel without the resurrection. And if there's no gospel, then there's no faith in Christ. There's no belief in Christ. And if there's no belief in Christ, then we're gathering together for nothing. If the dead are not raised. So the structure of this passage uh, shows us that, that Paul confronts the Corinthians with the logical consequence of their denial. And that is what Paul uses, as we're going to see when we go through these principles, that Paul uses logic. He uses the logical consequences of their denial, just like we've been talking about in our worldview Bible studies on Wednesday nights, that you have to take a person's worldview and look at the logical consequences of what they believe. All other worldviews are false worldviews except for the biblical worldview. Secularism, we talked about that. That is a false worldview. Look at the logical consequences of secularism. We're experiencing it now in our culture. And now we're talking about Marxism and the implications of that worldview, taking it to its logical consequences, its logical end, and you'll see that that worldview does not work. So Paul used the same argumentation when it comes to the resurrection. That if there is no resurrection of the dead, then what are the logical consequences of believing that? And that is uh, what he's going to do uh, with their denial. So why was there confusion about the resurrection that the Corinthians had? 
First of all, they lived in a Greek culture. Uh, Corinth was in, in Greece. Okay? It was under the Roman Empire, but they were in a Greek culture. And Greeks were highly influenced by Greek philosophers. You probably heard their names like Plato and Aristotle, among uh, the more famous ones. But Plato expounded in one of his writings called Phaedo. It is based on uh, anthropological. When we think about the word anthropology, that is the study of man. Okay, anthropology means the study of man, the study of human nature. So when you hear the word anthropology, we're talking about the study of man. So Plato, his book Phaedo, P-H-A-E-D-O, was based on the dualism of the body and soul. They saw the body as, as gross, as corruptible, and subject to illusion. But the soul was immortal. The soul was eternal. The soul was essentially divine. So in other words, this dualism said that the body was good, the physical body was bad rather, but the spirit was good. That was a dualism. That's what they uh, believed that the soul was infallible, but that the body was corrupt. But biblical immortality, on the other hand, believes that there is a conflict with death and involves a new creation, and that the integrity of the body and soul is restored and perfected in Christ. But Greeks don't believe in the restoration of the body because they believe that the body is what? Bad. That it is corrupt, that it must be done away with. But biblical immortality says different. Yes, we have sin in our bodies. But there will be a day where, guess what, our corrupt bodies will take on incorruption, as Paul says. The corrupt will become incorruptible. That our body and soul will be restored and perfected at the glorification of our bodies when Christ comes back. So the confusion that the Corinthians have is that they were believing that a corrupt body can't raise from the dead. But we know that Christ's body was corrupt, first of all, but just generally among people. That the body's corrupt once a person dies, then that's it, because the body is corrupt, it is evil. So why would there be a resurrection of something that is corrupt and evil? So they were confused by the Greek culture around them. And being in that type of culture can do that, just as uh, we as Christians living in 21st century America, being in the midst of what's going on in our society and in our culture. If we don't hold forth to a strong biblical worldview, then guess what? Our minds, too, would be corrupted, just as Lot was. You know, Peter attested to that about Lot. Lot's soul was vexed, although he was saved out of Sodom and Gomorrah, but it was such evil in Sodom and Gomorrah that that Peter said in First Peter that, that Lot's very soul was vexed because of all the evil that he saw and experienced in that corrupt and wicked uh, culture in which he lived. And so Paul is going to address these Corinthians to say, hey, if there's no resurrection, then, man, it just destroys our whole argument. So we're going to look at our principles here. The main overarching principle is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the eternal hope for the believer. It is our, it's not, it's not just a temporary hope. 
It is an eternal hope. We have hope for all of eternity, not just in this life, but in the life to come. Because as we talked about with the uh, worldview of nihilism, meaning uh, it's, it's, it's a hopeless existence that this life is all there is. So I can just live however I want to. I can kill people. I can destroy my body. You know, I can do all these evil things. Why? Because there's no life beyond this one. I might as well eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. But that's not the hope for the believer. That is a hopeless existence. So the resurrection is our eternal hope. It's for all eternity that we have hope, not just here on this earth. So what Paul does is summarize his argument, and this is how he summarized it. Verse 13, he says, if, so that's a, this is a proposition, you know, like a what if, okay? So this is his uh, immediate proposal, a hypothetical, so to speak. If the dead are not raised, you have the if. This is a, uh, I took logic, logic and reasoning in college. This is a if-then argument, okay? So you begin with the if and then the then because the then is the consequence of the if, okay? So Paul says, if the dead are not raised, then what? Christ has not been raised. We see that in verse 13. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. Okay, that's the first argument. But if Christ is not raised, look at verse 14, then what? Our preaching, my preaching, is empty, is void, is vain, is meaningless. I'm wasting my breath. I'm running a fool's errand. And he says also, your faith <laughs> is what? Also empty. And what's the result? We're all false witnesses of God, preacher and congregant alike. So let's look at this argument. He continues. Verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, he says, your faith is in vain if you, if you uh, continue to look down. If Christ is not risen, look at verse 16, your faith is what? Futile. And you're still in your sins. So we're going to look at the first argument. He says, if Christ, if, if there's no uh, resurrection of the dead. Why is this important? Because Christ did what? He rose from the dead but if there's no rising from the dead then Christ didn't rise from the dead so he begins with the greater to lesser argument that's what that's called you go from the greater to the lesser the greater overarching principle is that there is a resurrection of the dead that's the greater principle that's the, that's the greater outlook okay now if 
the dead are not raised, then how could Christ be raised from the dead? That destroys all of Christianity right there. So the implication must be the dead, the dead must be raised. That's where it begins. But the argument falls apart if you say the dead can't be raised because that means, again, Christ can't be raised. And if Christ can't be raised, then guess what? I'm wasting my time up here today. You're wasting your time today. You waste your time every Lord's Day. You waste your time reading and praying and studying your Bible and, and uh, living a sanctified uh, life in the light of God. Everything that we're doing is what? It's false. Okay? So the result is, verse 15, we're false witnesses. We're, bearing, we're, we're violating one of the commandments that tells us we should not bear what? False witnesses. We're violating one of the Ten Commandments. But that's the result of the very first proposition that if the dead are not raised. I said this before, we don't become ghosts when we die, okay? So let's, let's, let's get that out the way. This is the hope that we have looking at this principle. And we're going to look at it in our message, but the main thing to remember is that, again, we have to keep this in mind, people. This earth is not it. This is not everything. This is not everything. You know, it's like the old hymn, uh, Hold to His Hand, God's Unchanging Hands. It says, Build your hopes on things eternal. This is an eternal truth. It's eternal either way. If the dead are not raised, then for all eternity, what? The dead won't be raised. But if the dead are raised, then for all of eternity, guess what? The dead in Christ will what? Be raised. That is a great hope for us. But then Paul says, but if Christ has not been raised, again, verse 14, he says, then your faith is in vain. That's verse uh, 17. It's futile. You know what the word futile means? It means empty. It's worthless. It means nothing. And then the most damning thing is that, look at the end of verse 17. And my translation has an exclamation point at the end of it. That means Paul said this with emphasis. He says, your faith is futile and you are still what? In your sins. Wow. That you are still in your sins. That is damning to the believer if Christ had been raised from the dead. We're still in our sins. What was the purpose of the cross? To do what? To purchase us. To pay for the penalty of our sin. To grant us forgiveness through sins by the shedding of his blood. But if there's no resurrection, guess what? It's nothing. We are still in our sins. We're not clothed with the righteousness of Christ. 
we're not justified by grace through faith in Christ and our sin record wiped clean. Why? Because the dead have not been raised. That is a massive implication for not believing that the dead will be raised. So, you can turn to the next slide. And also, deceased believers are what? Lost. Because, look at verse 18. Then also, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And then what is the result? We will be the most wretched or pitiful people. So, it all begins with what? If the dead are not raised from the dead. I'm sorry, if the dead are not raised, if there's no resurrection of the dead. Our faith is in vain. We're still in our sins. And all of us who have loved ones who died in Christ, guess what? They're lost. Forever. Think about people who have funerals of loved ones that are believers our hope is that what we'll see them again when we go to be with the Lord also and also our hope is that they are with the Lord they're not just laying there in the grave for, for all of eternity or going to the great nothing or the great beyond we have hope that they are not eternally lost. But Paul says that we would be the most wretched of people in verse 19 if the dead are not raised. The most wretched, the most pitiful of people to proclaim this resurrection, to have all this focus and attention on Easter, all for nothing. We'll be the shame and the scourge of the world if that were the case. If we are hoping in Christ only in this life, of all people, we ought to be the most pitied. But guess what? Our hope is not in this life, is it? It can't be. Don't make your hope in this life. Again, God puts us here to glorify him, to enjoy him forever. Because of his grace, we do acquire things. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with buying a home, you know, wanting to live in a nice neighborhood or whatever, you know, acquiring possessions. There's nothing, nothing inherently sinful about that at all. Going on nice vacations, nothing inherently sinful about that. God gave us all things richly to enjoy yes he did God God is a good guy he's a loving God he gives us all these things to enjoy he gives us the ability to what to work to make a living to earn a living to be able to purchase things to enjoy those things he gave us the grace to be able to do that it is nothing sinful about that but if that is where your hope rests in your acquisition of things in your ability to purchase things, in your ability to have things. If that is where your hope rests, 
that is such an empty pursuit. If you don't believe so, read the book of Ecclesiastes. <laughs> Where Solomon says, all that a man works for, that when he leaves, is going to be squandered by those who is left behind to. Isn't that what happens a lot? You all put all your money into this stuff, you work for all this, and then your kids get it, and they squander it. It's not taken care of by the next person. He was showing in the book of Ecclesiastes the futility of life. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. All is vain, all is empty, except for the worship of God. It is not empty to do that. But when we put our hope in this life, guess what? It's going to be empty. And we will be the most miserable people if all we had was this life. I say often, don't let heaven, I'm sorry, don't let earth be your heaven. For unbelievers, this life is the best that it gets. It is. Life on this earth for the unbeliever for those who rejected salvation in Jesus Christ, this is the best that it gets for them. They might as well just ride it out, eat, drink, and be merry. Because guess what? They're going to have to give an account for their souls. Why? Because they have their hope in this life. All they're concerned about is what they can gain in this life. Do we know people like that? We have to search our hearts and ask ourselves, are we like that? Are we like the ones who only put our hope in this life? Or are we looking at the life to come, knowing that, man, our hope is way beyond this? That's what the resurrection does. That's what the hope of the resurrection does. It gives us hope beyond this life. So we won't be uh, pitied. Isn't that such a great thing? It reminds me of the parable of the rich fool. This is found in Luke, the 12th chapter. I want to read this right quick. This, this rich fool had hope in this life. And Jesus tell this, tells this parable about that. I'll uh, read it for you. But it's found in Luke 12. I think this is one of the parables that I, I, I preached on. So it says here, Then from the crowd, one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Always remember that. Now, he goes into this parable and says to them, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And again, we're talking about in the context of hope in this life. That if, 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 if all we have is hope in Christ in this life, then we're to be most pitied. This man we're going to read about in this parable had hope in this life. So he says, take heed, I'm sorry, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. 
And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. Isn't that the world? Isn't that what the world tells us to do? To build up, to get bigger and greater things so that we can kick our heels up on our coffee table, sipping out of some glass with a straw and umbrella hanging out of it. Living the good life. And again, it's nothing inherently sinful about doing that. But the question is, where is your heart? And we see what Jesus says about this man. So this man says, his heart tells him, hey man, you, you've gotten all this stuff. Take it easy, man. Take a chill pill. Come on, man. Eat, drink, and be merry. Have fun. Live it up. Go out there and live your best life. But God said to this man, Fool! <laughs> this night your soul will be required of you. Then those, I'm sorry, then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What does that have to do with this principle? If all we have in this life, as Paul said, if in this life we have hope in Christ, we are all men to be most pitied. If all we have was just this life and the acquisition of things, that's all we would live life for, right? Because this is all there is to it. We live as if our soul is not going to have to give an account to God. That's a life that's lived as if there's no resurrection of the dead. People who don't have a hope in the resurrection of the dead are those who live as if they don't have to, they're going to be raised from the dead and they're going to have to stand before God. Jesus himself spoke of uh, two resurrections in John, uh, the fifth chapter. There are going to be two resurrections. The resurrection unto life and the resurrection unto eternal condemnation. <coughs> it's like, you know, my old pastor used to say, those who are bound for hell, they're going to be called back up to be judged again to be sent back to hell. They're not, they're not going to be waiting in purgatory. That they remain in a state of grace as the Catholics teach that they can work their way out of purgatory and be received into heaven. No, if they die in their sins, then guess what? They're going to hell to await their final judgment to be sealed. Why? Because they lived as if there's no resurrection of the dead, that it doesn't matter. How many unbelievers you think that celebrate Easter with their kids, with their families, even think about that reality. I don't think any of them do. 
because they have such a false unbiblical view of what this day actually means but as believers guess what we know there is going to be a resurrection he is coming back Paul testifies to that in 1 Thessalonians the 4th chapter verses 13 through 18 he talks about that why because the Corinth, the Thessalonians rather were starting to not believe that the the, the resurrection of the dead was going to take place that the dead in Christ was going to rise first but Paul told them when Christ does come out when he cracks that sky then the dead in Christ shall rise first and those who remain will be caught up to meet him in the air because the Thessalonians believed the same thing they were in the same they were in Greece just like the Corinthians were so they believed all those false worldviews about the dualism of the body But we know as believers that the dead will raise. Amen. So Paul's argument, just to summarize, it falls into two parts. Uh, the first relates to his ministry and the second to their faith. So first, if Christ has not been raised in Paul's preached message, which he called the gospel in verse one, is empty. Because the gospel's content is centered on he was raised and he appeared. We read that in the first part of this, this chapter. If you take out Christ's resurrection, the message is now void of content. The gospel message is void if you take out the resurrection of Christ. It's like an empty bucket with no water. But Paul, however, had witness to the Corinthians that Christ had God rather had raised Christ based on Paul's own encounter with the risen Lord because he said himself that then last of all he was seen by me in verse 8 as by one born out of time he was saying that because he didn't see him around the same time the apostles did he wasn't one of the original ones who did so if this is false it means that Paul had been found to be a false witness to God raising Christ from the dead. So Paul, as a devout Jew, he was awestruck at the possibility of being a false witness and giving a false testimony about God. This was very serious to Paul that the resurrection was real because he did not want to be violating the command to bear a false witness. So this was very serious for him Paul knew that he would be guilty of a crime on the day of judgment if he had been a false witness that's how serious it was for him and secondly if Christ had not been raised then there are grave consequences for the Christian faith in verse 14 Paul had already introduced the idea that their faith would be empty of his message and this is in reference to the resurrection. So now he expands on this emptiness. Because faith in an unresurrected Christ is futile, as we say. It is senseless. It is pointless. And this word is used of the worship of carved idols that God had uh, condemned Israel for in the book of Isaiah. Particularly Isaiah 
uh, chapters 42 through 45, where God told Israel, or Judah rather, about the emptiness of worshiping idols. So if our faith was futile, it would be just as bad as the worshiping of carved idols that are no gods, that have no existence. That's how bad it would be for us if our faith was futile. Faith in a dead man is just as futile as worshiping an idol because idols themselves are dead. They don't have life. They can't give life. As one of the psalmists says, idols have eyes but can't see. They have ears but cannot hear. They have hands but cannot touch. Our futile faith would be the same way because the corpse cannot give us help. But if Christ died for our sins, but was not raised by God in vindication, then his death by itself achieved nothing. The cross means nothing. The cross means nothing if Christ had not been raised from the dead because it didn't stop at the cross. The resurrection had to happen. And so Paul illustrated this in two ways. Going back to where he said in verse 17 and you are still in your sins they would remain unforgiven on the day of judgment those who passed their days believing they have been forgiven through Jesus Christ's death would discover how cruelly mistaken they are and they will face only the wrath of God why because they are still in their sins that's the implication of that assertion if we're still in our sins, we're in big trouble. Because God is going to pour out his wrath on our sins. Second, those who have fallen asleep again. Those who died in Christ. Were proved to have been lost. And instead of giving comforting hope. To the loved ones of the deceased who died in Christ that they will see them again in the kingdom we will find to our heart that they too are lost I wouldn't want that I can't believe that because I believe in a resurrected savior as Christians we must also realize that because there's a resurrection of the dead there's a resurrection of Christ and because there's a resurrection of Christ, there's a resurrection of the dead. And that gives us hope. And so Paul gives this conclusion again in verse 19. This life only, I talked about this earlier, but this is just an addition to it. Paul said again, if we are hoping in Christ only in this life, of all people, we are the most to be pitied. And John Piper said this about this passage. He says, this may be a pointed reference to the Corinthians' belief about the Greeks, that their beliefs about the body and spirit. He asked, did their preoccupation with spiritual gifts lead them to think that this life in the here and now was all that mattered so that it was immaterial whether or not Christ was raised? Were that the case, their assurance of forgiveness 
is a delusion. And their hope for the salvation of the deceased would be a delusion. What pathetic creatures they would be living a life based on assurance and hope if there was no basis for that assurance and hope, the resurrection of Christ from the dead. That would be a foolish thing to do to believe that in this life that's all there was, the here and now. There would be a great delusion and we'll be pathetic creatures as Paul said, to be the most pitied. We'll be pathetic creatures if we believe that. So Paul is saying that there is no true faith without genuine hope and there is no hope without Christ's resurrection from the dead. We have a living hope in a living Christ. You know we sing the song sometimes because he lives. He's not dead. He's not in that grave. He is alive. He's not only alive. He is reigning. He is in session. He is seated at the right hand of God right now. Serving us as our high priest, as our intercessor. He prays for us. He pleads our righteousness before the Father as our advocate. You know, an advocate is like a defense attorney. The defense attorney pleads the case for the defendant. As Satan accuses us, he's, our, he's the prosecutor. He accuses us of sins, as John the Revelator says in Revelation 12, he accuses the brethren. He's the accuser of the brethren. Satan accuses us. But what does Christ do as he's in heaven? He is interceding for us. He's clothed us with his righteousness. He is our advocate. He is our defender. And he does this day and night. He does it unceasingly. That is the hope that we have with the resurrection. He's not going to be found anywhere on this earth because he rose from the dead. And that is our living hope. Amen. A few applications here. First of all, we are the most blessed of all people. We are. Christians are. There's, there's this thing as Christian privilege. I remember preaching that when I preached through, uh, I think it was uh, the, the beginning parts of uh, First Peter, that there's a Christian privilege. We are the most blessed of people. Why? Because we have a hope beyond this life. We have to realize how much of a blessing that is. All the weariness that we face in this world all the struggle with our sin nature, all the struggle with the sins of other people. We as Christians know that what? This is not it. How many of us have struggles in our bodies, with our jobs, in our minds, in our families? They're real. But that's not the end of it. We're blessed because we know 
that because he lives, because he is risen, that we have a hope beyond this life, that we know that when he comes back, whether we're in that grave, we're coming out, or whether he, whether we are alive, that we're going to go up and be with him. Our bodies are going to be glorified. We won't have the ravages of sin, the aches and pains in our bodies anymore. There's going to be no sin because sin brought forth all the, all the corruption of creation because of sin. Guess what? We're most blessed because that's not going to be our reality. I say it all the time. You know, John MacArthur said the greatest thing about heaven is going to be the absence of sin. Because sin brought all this upon us, brought all these sorrows and, and troubles upon us. But because we have a living hope in the resurrected Christ, guess what? That energizes us to press forward, to persevere in the faith. To know that one day we're going to stand before him and he's going to say to us, enter in. He's going to say to us, well done good and faithful servant. He's not going to say to us, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire and be prepared for the devil and his angels, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's not our hope. Our hope is, he's going to say to us, welcome to the place that I've prepared for you since the foundation of the world. That's why we are the most blessed and that's where we should rest our hope. That this is not it. I've been to many uh, funerals. I've officiated many funerals of believers and that is one of the most comforting experiences is when I know that that person that's in that casket in front of the podium is resting with Christ. They've entered into their rest. Especially those who are old and sickly and, you know, just struggled to stay healthy and they, their body finally says, I can't take it anymore, and their heart gives way. You can say to those family members, they're at rest now. They have a living hope. One day, that body is going to be raised, and it's going to be raised incorruptible. It's going to be raised without all the blemishes, all the pains that they suffered in this life. When I preached my father's funeral, uh, it'll be nine years ago uh, this month, I, saw, I had to say, I said, look, my dad, he had a lot of health struggles. He was on a lot of prescriptions for a lot of things. But I, I said at that funeral, I said, he's, he's, he's at rest now. He's not in constant pain anymore like he was for the last maybe five years of his life. He was in constant pain all the time. But I said, look, I have a hope now that guess what? He's not facing that pain anymore. As opposed to him not being in Christ and that his pain is going to be more. And it's going to be worse. And it's going to be unfathomable. And it's going to be for all of eternity. He thinks he's in pain now. Then he goes to that place where there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth and eternal sorrow. 
I'm, I'm sorry, eternal sorrow and horror. I put those two words together. Eternal sorrow, eternal grief, eternal pain. It is going to be a conscious felt torment. That's not a hope worth hoping in, is it? We are blessed, Christian. You are blessed. Believe it. Amen? Amen. Next, because of the resurrection, we are forgiven. <laughs> because Christ died for our sins and has been raised alive by God. Because as Christ has been raised from the dead, we are raised from death to life. We read in Ephesians 2 last week that we were dead and our trespassing and sin. The resurrection of Christ represents our resurrection from death to life. Life in this earth and also the life to come. Remember, eternal life is an already not yet proposition. We have it, but we're going to have it. We have eternal life now, but we're going to ultimately have it in the end. We are forgiven because of the resurrection. What greater weight is lifted off of a person than to know that their sins have been forgiven? I say it all the time. People who are unbelievers, they struggle with their sins more than you realize because deep down in the sinews of their soul, they know that they're living in sin against God. And that their sins, God only forgives the sins of those who believe in him. Christ, yes, he died for the sins of those who, what, believe. Those who believe, the elect. He paid the price for everyone's sins. The penalty has been paid, but those who are without Christ have to do what? They have to return to him and be saved. Or else they're going to still remain in their sins. We are forgiven. Our past, present, and future sins. The sins we haven't even committed yet are already forgiven. Isn't that, isn't that great? Just thinking about that. The sins that we're going to commit when we leave church <laughs> have already been forgiven. Man, praise the Lord for that. And lastly, again, we talked about this. Lost loved ones are not lost. They are safe in the arms of Jesus. Anybody have lost loved ones in here who are uh, in Christ, who died in Christ? You have hope of knowing that they're safe, that they've entered into their rest. Woe to the one who dies without Christ. No amount of prayers, no amount of crying at the funeral. I, I've seen people, you know, maybe some of y'all have too. My wife and I know we've been to funerals of people who were, were not believers. It's like a double grief. Because deep down inside, those family members know. They may say all these nice, oh yeah, they, they gave their life to Christ at an early age. <laughs> you know. 
and walked away and, you know, never turned back. I get game banging, doing whatever, sleeping around with a bunch of women, just causing havoc and chaos everywhere they went. And then when they died. R.I.P. R.I.H. Heaven gained another angel, which it doesn't, by the way. Uh, you know, <laughs> heaven needs another angel. You know, so for all this ungodly, unbiblical stuff, they say all those things. It's too late. It's too late. But if we have those who died in Christ. We have great joy in knowing that they are with him right now. They're with the Lord. That's the hope that we have in the resurrection, and that's the hope that it gives us. And I pray that we find hope, and not just today, not just for this Sunday, but it's an everyday reality, not just one day a year, that we should have this reality in mind. Amen. Let us pray. Father, I pray, first of all, that you use this message to bring sinners to repentance. That you use this message to convict the sinner of his or her sins. I pray, Lord, that you use this message to encourage us as believers to not live just for this life because we have a greater hope, we have a greater inheritance, we have a greater future. We have an eternity that has been secured for us already through the blood of Jesus Christ. Excuse me, so Father, my prayer this morning is that you strengthen us as believers as we consider the resurrection, not just today, but every day, and the implications thereof, that we don't have hope only in this life. And that we have the courage to share that message to others also. Who feel that their life has no purpose. Who feel that there's no hope. That what's the use of, 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 of living? My, my, my life is hopeless. I've, I've messed it up. But Lord, we know that they haven't. That no one can out see in your grace. But Lord, that you receive with mercy all those who turn to you in faith you receive them and you give them eternal life and they will have the same hope that we have as believers so father i pray that you do your work by your spirit in applying your word to the hearts of sinners that they may be saved and also apply your word to the hearts of believers as we live by your word in Christ's name I pray, amen.